Well, if you're, uh, if you're wired up like me and you see a, uh, a road going through the woods with snow on it, you think, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out to those woods and be remade. And that's a lot of what we're talking about today is be still and know that I am God because this Sunday of Advent is the Sunday of peace. Last week was hope, this week is peace, next week will be joy, and then love, and then Christmas Eve. So we talk about peace. And I want to give you the end of our teaching time. We'll do teaching and then we'll observe the Lord's table. But I want to give you the very end, so in case you don't miss it, uh, of the whole point here of the next few minutes. Um, I want to give you the end of the teaching up front, and here it is. If you want peace, church, if you want peace, then we need Sabbath. We need Sabbath. We need a Sabbath rest every week. So we'll come back to that. Uh, I'm about to read to you. You're about to hear uh, Zechariah's prophecy over his newborn son, John, of John the Baptist. He will become John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin. And so you kind of have to get the backstory going here. Uh, I think oftentimes people hear this uh, prophecy of Zechariah and they think it's talking about Jesus. It is not. It's talking about John, who will be John the Baptist. And so it's a father's blessing and prophecy uh, over his son, who will take on the role of Elijah as the forerunner to, to the Messiah. Okay, And that might be a little too quick for you, but nonetheless, that's what's going on. Zechariah was struck speechless at the announcement that uh, he and his wife would have a child, that Elizabeth and Zechariah would have a child. He's struck speechless because he doubts the angel Gabriel's announcement about uh, the possibility of the birth of his son. And so he's been silent now for nine months or more, and at the uh, birth of his child... And at the, um, uh, when they take, present him to the temple, his mouth is loosened, and these are the very first words that he utters. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Then his father, John, uh, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that he would be saved, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking to his own son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace, everyone. Peace in a time of fear. Peace was Israel's dream. It was their one hope. It's all they craved was peace. The Hebrews had been enslaved, oppressed, sold off, tortured, and crushed for over 700 years. Much of the Old Testament is Israel's tale of slavery and exile from home and being sold into slavery and then their slow, slow, slow journey back to their promised land, but never, ever free, except for very, very brief periods. And now during Zechariah's time, Jesus' time, John's time, it was then the crushing Roman Empire who was enslaving them and then dominating them with their oppressive armies and taxation. When will peace come? Was the constant thing in their culture. Good news, Zechariah prophesizes, the dawn from on high will break upon us and guide our feet into the way of peace. Finally, peace will come in our time. On that holy silent night, the first Christmas, as the shepherds kept watch over their flocks, the angel of the Lord appeared and announced, Good news. To you this day is born a Savior. And suddenly a host of heaven joins the angels and sings, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Peace among those whom he favors. Peace on earth has finally come to the Jews with the birth of Jesus. That is the backstory for the entire birth narrative, the birth story of Jesus. And it's important to understand it, otherwise Christmas doesn't make any sense. Now, if you're a thinking person here, and I think all of you are, you're going to realize that it doesn't take a PhD to figure out that during Jesus' life and ministry, the next, and for the next 200 years, the Roman Empire actually continues to crush and oppress and persecute the Jewish people as well as the rest of the area around the Mediterranean. And there was Christians too. Somewhere around the late first century, the Roman empires, probably around the time of Nero and so forth, began to uh, persecute Christians. They get thrown to the lions, they get thrown to wild beasts, they get dragged, they get burned at the stake. Peace? (laughs) If there's one big huge disconnect for all of us these days, we tend to dream of Jesus and Mary and Joseph like this cute little nativity scene, this this little quaint, befuddled uh, family living a normal life, wearing nice clothes with money in their pocket and going about their business and watching Jesus grow up along with his brothers and sisters probably. We have this idea that the first Christmas is just like our little Italian mantelpiece, you know, creche or whatever that thing's called. I never know what the name of this stuff is, but like sitting on your coffee table or on the mantle. And everyone's all sweet and beatific and Jesus is doing this in the crib and all that. When in fact, the reality is the Holy Family was living in nightmare much like the citizens of Syria are today. That's the reality of it. Don't forget that Joseph had to take Mary and Jesus Jesus and flee to Egypt to avoid being killed off by Herod, their modern day President Assad. The Holy Family, everyone, were refugees. Where's the peace? 
Well, as Jesus declared at his trial before the Roman governor, some 30 years later after his birth, of course, before Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. The peace Jesus brings is a peace in one's soul we're left with. Peace begins within the heart of each one of us, and this still remains true. And that's why we still preach this gospel. If we want peace during our own times, it begins within your own heart and soul. And it comes from Jesus, the one who said these words to his disciples. He says this, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It seems like the people in Jesus' time, despite the fact that they were refugees, just about like they are in Syria today, were still hungry for rest. They were still hungry for peace. They were still trying to find some sort of consolation throughout the day. Their lives must have been just as harried as ours, except for the fact that they were being persecuted. You know, I know it's a common belief these days that we're living in extremely violent times with more acts of terror and more days of shootings than on the calendar, as was noted this week. It seems like we're living in very, very violent and extreme terrorist times. But the statistical truth is, everyone, that we are living in the most peaceful time of all human history. Despite the fact that every week there appears to be two, three, four, twenty people shot randomly. But in the greater scheme of things, the numbers game, we are living in the most peaceful time. All of those numbers now, of course, are skewed, and that may be an old statistic because of the 250,000 people, citizens, normal people, children, moms and dads, who have been killed in Syria. 250,000 people. Aside from that statistic, for the last 20 years, we have been living in very, very peaceful, safe times. And I don't believe I'm making a political statement here, but I will now. Because information is so immediate with social media and so forth, and we're all connected and wired in, The media has become so sensationalized in order to capture market and your dollars. They've become so sensationalized that the latest flood is always the flood of the century. The latest shooting is the most gruesome. The latest economic statistic is the final nail in the coffin of the world and the world's going to end because unemployment went up one-tenth of a percent or something like that. And it feels, it feels like we are living in the most terrible of times, especially when we listen to the media. But we are not, not by a long shot. We live in a society where we have one of the highest standards of living humanity has ever known. You are sitting in a place with a roof over your head. It is comfortably temperatured in here. Not too cold, not too hot. And for most, unless you forgot this morning, your belly is full. And we are scared. We live in a time of fear. I'm not trying to dismiss the fact that terrorist acts happen. I'm trying to say, put it in perspective. 
compared to the original Christmas and what people and humanity have gone through for centuries and millennia going before us. I can't do much about the super-sensationalized media or politicians capitalizing on fear-mongering these days, but as a soul doctor, I can prescribe something to you that's right there with Jesus, and we take our cue from him. Find rest for your soul, everyone. Find rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. We can find rest in our souls. Part of the rest comes through turning off some of the media that's out there that's telling you to fear. I mean, I'm tempted during Lent this year to say, like, how about we just take seven weeks and everyone turn off every piece of media, every blog, every news station, everything. Well, how about that for a fast? Amen. You know? And just see if we can't turn to Jesus. I guess we'll do that now, won't we? Um, <laughs> But as a soul doctor, I can prescribe to you, find rest for your soul. Make your burden light. This is your choice. This is your choice. The answer for a fear-filled nation is found all the way back in the Bible's creation story, and that is Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested. This is what it says, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus, the, everything's done. Six days of creation's done. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all their multitudes, including the creation of humanity. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The old rabbis uh, said that uh, creation... I love reading about old Jewish rabbis because they always did such such the quirkiest twist on anything. And um, they said that God actually wasn't done with creation uh, on the seventh day. You know, and you're like, well, that doesn't sound like scripture. You're like, well, the rabbis usually don't really care about getting everything really exact the way we do. But they just said God actually created rest on that day. He created tranquility. It was a temporary rest. And right there in that passage that was up on the screen, the word for rest is this word, manuha. I know what you're thinking. This word rest in the Hebrew is manuha, and you're saying that sounds like a pile of something. And, and I just throw that at you just because I think it's memorable. But you need manuha, everyone. You need a whole bunch of manuha. You need to avoid stepping in the manuha, but you need to have manuha. You need a lot of manuha. We need to rest. We need to rest as God rested on the Sabbath. Well before Moses, well before the Bible, well before the Ten Commandments, well before the Torah was Sabbath. From the foundation of the earth, there is a rest that is woven into the fabric of the universe. It is a part of everything around us. And you do not have to be a Bible person, a Christian, or a Jew, or anything to understand this. It's all right there. Right now, this time of year, the ground goes fallow. The plants go dormant, the animals hibernate, heart rates slow, temperatures drop, and the day shortens. It is a part of the rhythm of the world that it sleeps, that it rests. The world takes a Sabbath. You and I were designed for rest. You were designed with a Sabbath Put into your soul.
or as Jesus phrased it, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. And he was speaking to those Pharisees who had legalized the Sabbath into 613 laws, such as how far you could walk, which was not very far, like a few hundred feet, before you had to stop, make a fire, cook food, make camp, and then you could pack it all up real quick and keep moving. They'd missed the point of the Sabbath. You could tie a knot halfway, but you couldn't tie it the entire way. When you read your Gospels, you'll find Jesus arguing with the Pharisees nonstop over them turning this day of rest into this labor, legalism, fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it. I'm convinced that our culture lacks the proper traction to truly understand a, a day of rest. We don't have it. We've become the Roman Empire. We don't have a day of rest. It's on the calendar, and your workplace somehow gets it, <coughs> at least for some of us. But therefore, we don't have any true peace. It's no wonder, then, that what does find traction is fear-mongering. We have to begin, folks, with a heavy dose of resistance to nearly everything around us that tells us to keep pushing on. The forces of chaos, compulsion, and competition tell you that you are in danger of losing out if you do not press and live life at a frenetic pace. Take no rest or you will be in trouble, is what society says. Many spiritual authors these days are diagnosing our society to this day with an old-fashioned classic a disease that is called sloth. It is the sin of sloth. And I know you hear the word sloth and you think, well, isn't that the same as laziness? But not in the classic definition of sloth. The, the, the malaise of our culture of sloth is not the same as laziness. We're not a lazy culture. We are a slothful culture, people are saying, because real sloth is simply this. Sloth is being busy at no good thing. Sloth is being busy at no good thing. And by no good thing, we mean nothing that counts or that we have no idea of how to gauge whether or not it is important or not. Sloth is being busy at many things without understanding why we are being busy. It's, in other words, we've become animals. We get up. We run around, we gather our nuts, we put them in the tree, and then we go to sleep. That's not a human being. That's just a human doing. Real sloth is being busy at no good thing. Hundreds of years ago, ancient Christians recognized that a person can scurry around, running to and fro, here and there, busy, 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 and have no genuine idea of why they're running around. Why are we so busy? I think instead of being human beings, what we've really become, what I've watched grow, you know, raising children, is that my children are professional consumers. If there is one thing that defines us in our society, we know how to buy stuff. And now you can do it with one click. I know, I do it dozens of times a year. We are professional consumers, and we don't even know it. It's just a part of what we are. Consumerism defines us. 
It drives our economy. It makes us well, and it keeps us safe. Consumerism is what defines America these days. As a matter of fact, it's so much a part of the world's fabric these days, being a consumer, that there can be a war going on somewhere, and in the same country where there's a war going on, their markets continue to just go on as though nothing's wrong. In the old days, if you had a war, the country shut down, the markets collapsed, and the whole thing fell apart. Not anymore. All of the money has been separated from the politics. Very interesting. We know how to buy things. We know how to shop. We know how to look at an advertisement. And in a very few split seconds, we can tell if it's a good deal or not. You do this just as a part of your instinct. I remember when my four-year-old little girl was sitting on the sofa sofa with me one afternoon watching the Chiefs game, and the commercials were coming on, and she, she said, Daddy, I like watching advertisements because they tell me what I want. The voice of a prophet. Like, well, no, duh. It was so profound and so simple. It's like that's exactly what's defined our culture. Culture tells us what we want. You didn't know you didn't need a new, you know, iPhone 6 or whatever until they told you that you needed one. And you thought that was your idea. Not true. We are excellent at being busy as consumers. We know how to work. That's good. Work is good. We are excellent at entertainment and play. Play is good. We are excellent at materialism. There's nothing wrong with having a few things with limits. But when you stand around out in the lobby in a few minutes, you're going to find this very common conversation, which I try and point out to you often. And it goes like this. How are you doing? I'm tired. What you been up to? Oh, man, I've been busy. You see, it's a way of saying I have a reason to be here. I'm not just taking up space on the planet I am busy and I'm tired, and so you should acknowledge the fact that I have a life. When in fact, everything in Scripture would say you do not have a life if that's the case. We can put you in a stable. We can tie you to a pin with a rope. That's what animals do. But you are not a human being at that point, according to Scripture, not according to the Sabbath. We have become busy at no good thing. We have become slothful. And in a strange way, being busy means that somehow we have purpose in life. And actually it means just the opposite. Instead, we need time and space to ask deep questions. It's always about the questions, everyone. And I'm not just talking simple questions. I'm talking profound spiritual questions. A question, one of my favorite, is this. What time is it in your life? What time is it in your life? I don't mean looking at the clock on the wall. Not that kind of time. I'm talking about asking the average American what time it is and and not thinking in terms of time, but thinking like this. What time are we living in? What age are you in? What era is happening? Where are you? What life stage are you in, if you want to put it in those terms? But it's a better question and a more spiritual question to say, what time is it? What time are we living in? We may say, well, we live in a time of fear, a time of terrorism. A time of uncertainty and a time of ambiguity and a time to be scared. That's one answer. 
It's a good start. It's not accurate, but it's a good start. What time is it, everyone? If we ask the founding fathers and mothers of this country, what time is it, they would have, to, they would have said, it's a time for all people to be free and self-determined and not under the oppression of a king. That's what the founding fathers would have said. If we ask Zechariah, the father of John, what time is it? He would have said, it is the time, it is God's time. It is God's time. Now is the time for salvation, is what Zechariah would have said. And then the heavens affirmed it and break open and say, peace on earth. I would answer the question, what time is it, with this. It's a time to walk away from a consumer identity and walk towards the light of Jesus. That's what time it is. It's a time to pray. It's a time to sit at the feet of Jesus and do the one necessary thing. It is a time to rest in a regular routine. It is a time to return to a lifestyle the way you were designed to be, of Sabbath. And I think if we ask God, what time is it? I'm going out on a limb here. God might ask us, because we all know that rabbis always answer everything with a question. Why do you rabbis always answer everything with a question? What's wrong with a question? So I think God would answer it this way. (laughs) Well, there are six days to create and one day to cease from creating, God would say. There are six days to create and one day to cease from creating. What day are you living in? Wednesday or Sabbath? Tuesday or Saturday? The noted Jewish scholar of last century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, very famous, by the way, writing about Sabbath in his classic little book on the Sabbath, he wrote this. I'm just going to give you this. It's a rather thick quote, but see if we can track with it here. How should we weigh the difference between the Sabbath and other days of the week? When a day like Wednesday arrives, the hours are blank. And unless we lend significance to them, they remain without character. And by being busy, we lend significance to Wednesdays. The hours of the seventh day, the Sabbath, are significant in themselves. They already have significance, he's saying. Their significance and beauty do not depend on any work, profit, or progress we may achieve. They have the beauty of grandeur, a holiness, a rest in love and generosity, a serenity, tranquility, and security, a perfect rest which thou art pleased. Abraham Joshua Heschel. The Sabbath already is full of peace. (laughs) And if we ignore it, we don't have peace. Author Lauren Winters, who was raised Jewish and converted to Christianity a few years ago, she wrote a little book also on the Sabbath called Mudhouse Sabbath. And she writes that Christians have no adequate concept of Sabbath. As she entered into Christianity, she says, you guys don't do Sabbath. She said that the Jewish idea of Sabbath was a day not to create. A day not to create. 
And by that, she grew up meaning we didn't do anything. You didn't write a chapter in your book. You didn't do any artwork. You didn't rake any leaves. You didn't cook. You didn't tie a knot. You had to light your candles before dinner time with the sun setting in her house. You don't do the dishes. You don't watch sports. You don't do sports. You sure don't go shopping. You don't fill up the car with gas and get ready for the week. Not until sunset on Sunday night. <laughs> the Sabbath began on Saturday on Friday night and went until Saturday night. Yeah, so I mean Saturday night is when you can actually fill the car up. No car repair, no house repair, no cooking, no artwork, no sports, no games. That's what she's saying. There's a rather strong concept of Sabbath rest. That's what she's trying to say, this idea of no creation. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, like, that's the most impossible thing I've ever heard. Well, of course. Of course, we're all fish swimming in the ocean. And this is some landlubber telling us what it's like to walk on land. We don't get it. Heschel doesn't think the Sabbath, though, in such strict terms. Abraham Joshua Heschel says he states that the Sabbath is a day of abstaining from toil, not to recover one's strength so you can go back out and fight the good fight on a Sunday or a Monday. Rather, Heschel says it's a day to become spiritually healthy. That's why the day is already full. You're doing a part of Sabbath, at least for Christians, because in 316, Constantine said that for the Christian, for the Roman Empire, that Sunday, the first day of the week, since that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, would actually now be the Christian's Sabbath, their day of rest. Which, by the way, just to digress for a moment, you know, I've heard uh, my children ask, like, why was Jesus only dead for three days in the tomb? You know, why did the whole resurrection thing only take place over three days? And it's like, well, if you're following John's gospel, which is what we're supposed to be reading here during um, this season of Advent, what you have is Good Friday, the day man was created, the, the day humanity was created, the sixth day, because John's gospel actually follows a, like a, a creation story. So humanity is created on the sixth day. What does Jesus do after he's died on Friday? Well, Saturday, the Sabbath, what? He rests in the tomb, in the cool of the tomb, right? Just in the cool of the tomb, the day of rest, the word of God is resting on the Sabbath. But on the first day of the week, the day of the new creation, Jesus rises. And of course, Mary runs to the tomb, and who does she mistake him for? The gardener. God, the gardener in the Garden of Eden. All very deliberate and true, I think, in John's gospel. Anyway, just to bring that back to you. Heschel says that without the Sabbath, the world becomes distorted to us. And that God becomes distorted to us. We begin to use things, and we begin to use each other, and we begin to use everything around us. We begin to use God. We begin to have a vending machine God where we're like Homer Simpson coming up, shaking the thing, trying to say, you need to give me back my candy and my Coke. Rather, we become spiritually healthy on a day of rest, on a Sabbath. Who can be content in a spoiled, distorted world? No one. We won't find rest. Soon enough, consumerism looks like the only good choice to a person who has been defined by discontent and by sloth. It's the only thing we can do is buy stuff and consume. Ruth Haley Barton, uh, one of my teachers, she says, we need to make some courageous decisions about sports, entertainment, and materialism 
if we want to take the Sabbath serious. We need to make some serious, courageous decisions about sports, entertainment, and materialism. In my little world, we have been taken over on Sundays now by uh, tournament play in sports. It was the last slot left to make a buck off kids' teams. And now it's happened. So the soul doctor prescribes the Sabbath for Christmas. Sabbath is the seventh day of creation. Sabbath is woven into the fabric of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I'm sure all of you have that memorized after last week's Advent on hope. Because there's another one to memorize this week. You'll have to look at the Advent Guide to see it, which we'll talk about here in a moment after, after communion. Jesus creates the world. That was Zechariah's prophecy. The original creator is Jesus recreating the world. And, and what you find then is this final sort of idea that in the beginning, right there in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, the better translation, according to the Jewish rabbis, is to get your Hebrew correct, not just your manua, but is to get it down and it says, in the beginning, God began creating. Creating is an ongoing process if we translate that more accurately. In the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, and then he created us. Jesus continues to create the world, and this is the huge reason why we want to celebrate Christmas and the birth of Jesus. So what does Sabbath look like for you? That's really tonight's discussion. If you gather around and look at the Advent Guide and so forth, what does Sabbath look like for you? What does it mean? Consider these words. And some of the quotes I use today are actually in the Advent Guide. And so you can look at those and have a discussion about what does it look like to rest for your family. It's a time, everyone, to rest. Advent is a time. It is a time to understand how to become humans again. Watch and pray. Those who are longing await his appearing. Watch, wait, and listen. Go in peace.